0: Today's sermon text is from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 8. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. (coughs) For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about in the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity.
1: You can have that. Thank you, Lindsay. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we ask for your help. Um, This is your truth, your word. It is spiritually discerned. So we need you to guide us into understanding of it, to a right understanding, right comprehension, and then therefore a right application. So we pray, Father, that you would help us during this time, and that you would do much beyond this time with the truth that is buried deeply in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, not sure if uh, this makes you sad or happy or somewhere in between, but this is uh, the next to last week in our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I, for one, am both sad and happy uh, to see this end. Uh, this this book uh, involves what I'll, I'll call just a bit of a heavier interpretive lift uh, to be able to understand it and to develop sermons. So I'm not sure I'm going to miss that piece. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the, the honesty and bluntness and, and realness of this book has been quite uh, refreshing. Uh, I heard an observation this week about this book that I thought was insightful. It was said that so many books, particularly in the New Testament, they, they, they aim and they help to sort of lift our eyes up above this life uh, to see the life to come. Uh, while Ecclesiastes causes us to stare at this life and realize there's something uh, to be gotten in it or uh, out of it. So uh, this book is one, uh, if you've been paying attention, it's one of bracing reality, but also uh, of great hope. Um, Ecclesiastes uh, helps us to see uh, that the life here and now, as difficult as it may be, uh, involves something to be enjoyed. Um, this book does not shy away from saying that life can be hard, that life is perplexing, confusing, downright ugly at times. And there are rarely easy, trivial, shallow answers to complex issues. Uh, Ecclesiastes isn't afraid to wrestle with the tough issues of life and to give honest answers, uh, which is why I think if you... If you're able to grasp it, you, you sort of have to appreciate it. So I hope you've appreciated the journey as much as I have. Um, the section that was just read, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 8, is really the preacher's uh, concluding section to his uh, sermon, if we can call it that, next week. As we close it out, we'll actually be looking at the epilogue um, of the book. And so we'll, we'll actually be closing out Ecclesiastes as we start Advent, Because I think the epilogue of the book, uh, it ties in well with the first theme of Advent. So uh, for this week, if you walk the entire journey, there's some familiar themes here, but maybe they're hit on in a different way or in a unique way. Uh, so certainly some, some new stuff here, even if the themes seem uh, repetitive. Um, generally speaking, the author, the preacher, uh, as we've come to know him, is going to make uh, one last attempt to answer a general question. How are we to live? How are we to live life in an uncertain world that is often brief, if, if we're looking at it that way? Or to put it more succinctly, to use his language, how do we live life under the sun? He's going to make one last attempt at helping us to understand how to live life under the sun. And I think the question, there's a threefold response to that question in this particular text. Um, there's a lot here but I would say that there. Uh, the, that life under the sun is is marked by three mindsets or three approaches, you may say. Uh, three approaches to an uncertain and brief life here under the sun. Obviously, not everything regarding what life is supposed to be like. We've had an entire book. We got the rest of the Bible. But this is what the preacher decides to end on. Somewhat of a closing speech or an argument. And as you will see, or as you already heard, it's targeted at the young but none of us can tune out. So just stay tuned in there. But if you're if you're young, if you would identify yourself as young or if you would then you need to pay close attention. So, a uh, very simple outline today, only 3 points. Hopefully a simple outline will lead to a somewhat abbreviated sermon, uh which I know is relative, so we'll just see how it goes, I'm trying to turn over a new leaf as I close out my time here. Uh always time to improve, right? Or always time to set yourself up for failure. So we'll just see how it goes. Alright. First approach to life under the sun. First mindset according to the preacher, our lives under the sun should be marked by action amidst uncertainty. Action amidst uncertainty. So, this encompasses verses one through six, uh, which is where a lot of the interpretive challenges, uh, lie. Even if you think they're in chapter eight, uh, chapter eight's actually a little, I mean, uh, chapter twelve, the first eight verses actually a little easier than the first six verses of eleven. But a bit of a debate around the first four verses in particular, and really just the first two are the hardest ones in chapter 11. But before we dive into that debate, I think the theme of uncertainty is is really not up for debate. I think these first six verses clearly depict a life, uh, just life in general, as being unpredictable and uncertain. So we like to think that we can predict things, that we know what's coming, that we have some degree of certainty about how things will go. Well, this text burst that bubble. This book bursts a lot of bubbles, but this text in particular says you have no idea really what's coming. So you have this repeated phrase regarding a lack of knowledge that we have regarding how things work and what might happen. You might underline it. you see it four times. Verse two, you know, not for, you know, not Then you have it twice in verse five. So the same thing twice. You do not know. And then again in verse six, you do not know. So four times in six verses, we are told we do not know. Okay, we don't know, according to this, what disaster may come. We don't know truly how pregnancy works, how life is given by God. And we it says we generally don't know the work of God and what God is up to a lot of times. And then we don't know what will actually prosper and what will fail. So we like to think we like to believe we are certain about things that we can predict how things will go, that we know what the future will hold. The preacher says it's just not the case. It's not how life works. And we are foolish to think otherwise. We even have him use some illustrations here in verse three to kind of push his point across. So he talks about rain and trees falling. And he looks like he's just talking about the obvious. Okay, if the clouds are full of rain, then guess what? It's going to rain. And if the tree falls there, guess what? It's going to lie there. He sounds like Captain Obvious. But that'd be missing the point because he's saying this in the context. He's using these illustrations in the context of us not knowing what's supposed to happen. Okay, and he says this right after us not knowing what disaster may come. So he's not being captain obvious, he's showing us how unpredictable things are. Just think about the weather. Anybody in here think they can accurately depict or forecast the weather? Okay, it often seems like those in that field are doing nothing more than guessing. Okay, if there's anybody in here involved in that, I'm sorry. I know there are a lot of professions that where being wrong or inaccurate is okay, and that's just a part of it. But I think weather is the one that irritates us the most. We plan, we make changes, we cancel, we do all sorts of things based on forecast. How often has the weather made a fool out of you? Okay, one way or the other, you canceled something or you decided to go through with something because of the forecast. All right, and then you have a tree falling. How many have predicted that a tree may fall or when it would fall or where it would fall? We don't control the falling of a tree. Okay, We can cut one down. That's not what it's talking about. We don't predict the falling of a tree, when it will happen, nor what direction that tree may fall in. Okay? None of that is on us. Generally speaking, they're just saying life is unpredictable. Anyone that has lived long enough doesn't dispute this point. If you've lived long enough, you know that life is uncertain. We may develop equations and percentages to put numbers to the probability of something happened, but life is still unpredictable in so many ways. Given that reality, how are we to live? What are we to do? What instruction does the preacher give us? What does God have for us in view of an uncertain, unpredictable life? Well, if I had to generalize it or sum it up, I'd put this way in light of uncertainty, Plan wisely, work diligently, but don't think that any of that guarantees the future. While at the same time, don't be paralyzed about that uncertainty. Take action amidst the uncertainty. Okay? I think for some people, our assumptions run completely contrary to what this text has to say. So the wrong assumption, would go something like this. The outcome is uncertain. Failure is possible. Therefore, Why take action? Why do anything? So that's the wrong assumption. Okay, outcome, uncertain, failure, possible, therefore, don't bother. The text would say outcome uncertain. Yes, failure, possible, but take action. Plan wisely, work diligently. In fact, invest wisely, work diligently. And you could add undergirding all this trust wholeheartedly. So I mentioned some interpretive challenges earlier. The first couple of verses are probably the most debated. OK, really two schools of thoughts on it. What does it mean to cast your bread upon the water and finding it after many days and then giving a portion to seven or eight and not knowing what disaster may fall? First school of thought revolves around. That means we're to give generously or to be charitable. And that, that understanding comes from the fact that there are other ancient proverbs, not biblical ones, that use the same exact language to talk about generosity or charity. So it's exhorting us to give generously, even though there's risk in that. You, you don't know what's gonna happen with your money, but give it generously. Be very charitable with your resources. That's the first school of thought. Second school of thought revolves around investing. This is the preacher's advice on business and commerce. So the bread on the water deal is a metaphor for trade and investing, even amidst the risk that's involved in that. And verse two is about investing diversely because you don't know what will fail or what will succeed. Okay, sort of the ancient version of don't put all your financial eggs in one basket. I lean toward the second interpretation fitting best with the context of the book. Makes most sense if Solomon wrote the book, that that would be. What he meant here. However, given how scripture often connects wealth and generosity, I'm not sure we have to disconnect the two. If we embrace the fact that when it comes to wealth, we are stewards, not owners, then investing wisely and giving generously don't have to be disconnected. And I don't think the Bible disconnects those. OK, so remember that when it comes to resources, when it comes to our time, our talents and our treasures, we are stewards Not owners of those things. Okay, We use them for others good and God's glory. So, all right. So it's it's about investing, business and commerce. But I'm not going to try to parse through exactly how Solomon's wisdom here relates to how you should use your money or invest your money. I'm not sure that I can tell you that this text provides justification for investing in crypto. I'm not even sure that Solomon would understand cryptocurrency. So no justification for that here. So I can't pull out of this and give you a wise investment strategy, but I can tell you the Bible is saying very clearly there are no risk-free ventures in life. And the Bible is saying that risk is not necessarily a bad thing. David Gibson, who we've quoted a lot along the way, he actually takes the other view of what these first few verses mean, but he admits there's a general truth here regardless of where you land He says, now, whether this is talking about business or commerce like the sea trade or whether this is simply speaking about life in general, the idea is that because the future is uncertain, there is risk involved in what we do. But that risk never means to be paralyzed. He goes on to add, one of the greatest mistakes we can ever make is to think about our life, our wealth and our possessions as if we can predict the future and then use them as such. So the preacher here is in no way saying be foolish with your possessions or your time or anything else. But he, he is saying you don't ultimately have control of the outcome of things. So you can't fully eliminate risk in your life. A certain level of risk is just part of the equation. So invest wisely, take action. Don't just hide your money in your mattress, so to speak, until you die. Invest wisely and use the return for the good of others and the glory of God. And don't just invest or plan wisely, but the text would also say work diligently. It's a big part of taking action amidst uncertainty. Not to mention, you're not going to have too much to invest if you don't work. So this is the scene in verses four as well as in verse six, or in verse four as well as verse six. So verse four, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. A picture of someone paralyzed by fear and therefore not working, not they're not just not investing. They're not working. Wind would be problematic when you're sowing because it just blow the seed away. So you're just sitting around all day going, will the wind blow? I'm not sure if it's going to blow. Therefore, I'm not going to work and I'm not going to sow my seed. But you're not going to get anything out of that. Nothing fruitful will come if you basically do nothing. Or it may rain or something may happen. So I just don't want to do my job. Look at the clouds. I'm not sure I should do anything. It's kind of like the student who thinks, you know, James Fan says it may snow tomorrow. And the student goes, school may be canceled. This doesn't work for you homeschool kids. I'm sorry. But you see, James, suspenders are off. And you think school's canceled. Therefore, I don't have to do my assignment. So you procrastinate. You put it off. Putting too much stock in the weather. Don't be in this would generally say don't be idle. Don't be a procrastinator. Get to work. According to verse six, even though you truly have no idea what the future holds, work diligently. Sow your seed withhold not your hand. You really can't be certain about what will succeed. Nonetheless, work. That's what it says. You don't know if it will succeed or fail, but work. We've seen before in this book that work is a gift of God. Work is a pre-fall institution. Corrupted by the fall, but not created after the fall. Okay, big difference. Work created before the fall. Okay, corrupted by the fall, but not created after the fall. So what is our author's exhortation here in the midst of uncertainty? Invest or plan wisely. Work diligently. Generally speaking, take action. Don't let the uncertainty in the world... You can generalize this a lot. Don't let the uncertainty in the world paralyze you to doing whatever. Be faithful. Work. Invest. You don't know what the future holds. Love. Take risks. Give generously. There are no risk-free options in life. You can reduce risk, and that's wise, but you cannot eliminate it. Life under the sun looks like action Amidst uncertainty next mindset or approach life under the sun also looks like rejoicing amidst brevity rejoicing amidst brevity. So the next two mindsets are taken from verses 11 uh, or chapter 11, verse seven through chapter 12, verse eight. OK, this primarily comes through verses seven through 10 of chapter 11, but there's overlap with what comes in chapter eight. So this is where we return to a very common theme in the book of Ecclesiastes that we are to live our lives in light of our death, okay? And we don't live our lives shrouded in death. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live a life shaped by death, okay? It's not our lives are not shrouded in death as if it's just this thing of despair that that causes us to shrink back. It's a, we live lives shaped by death, informed by the fact that death is coming. It doesn't this book doesn't talk about death so much to lead us to despair. The preacher talks about death so much so that we'll know how to live. He wants our certain end to radically affect our uncertain present. Part of his main aim in the text before us, he aims his arrows specifically at the young. So he brings death to bear again in an exhortation for the young to live a certain way. Now, we need to be clear about what he means by youth or young here. Obviously, if you are young in here, then you need to listen up. OK, if you are among the youth in this room, I'm not even going to define that. But if you're not among the youth in this room, God is speaking to you. When the Bible says, oh, young man or young woman, you may want to perk up. There's no longer your pastor talking. It is God. Anytime I'm up here, Lord willing, it is God speaking through his word. But this text says very specifically, oh, young man. And you could put "Oh, young woman there. OK, so youth, obviously. However, we can also observe in this passage that youth is a bit relative. Verse eight says, so if a person has many years, let him rejoice in them all. OK, if you have years left, rejoice in them all. Generally, by youth, it seems that he is referring to anyone that hasn't reached the stage of life portrayed in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12. Something we'll get to in a minute. In summary, those verses depict someone whose body and mind are in debilitating decline. If you haven't reached that point, then the Bible's speaking to you. I think the preacher is generally saying that we are to take hold of opportunity while we still have it. We are all headed to the grave, so now is the time, and now is the time to rejoice. So, there's specific application to actual youth here, but none of us are wholly excluded from anything here. I'll put it this way, if you were physically able to make it here, that would be all of you, and you can follow this sermon, then you are not excluded from what, what Solomon, what the Lord has to say here. So, what does the preacher want us to do? What is his exhortation? Well, simple rejoice rejoice but what's the why behind it he wants us to rejoice because life is brief he wants us to rejoice because life is brief in verse 8 he mentions the potential of having many years but he says the days of darkness are many if you back up to verse 7 where it says light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun you take that and you combine it with his comments about the days of darkness being many, and what you have is a contrast between life and death, between the goodness but brevity of life and the longness of death. You might put it this way. Life is good and short, but death is coming and long. Therefore, rejoice while you still have life. To quote Gibson again, to every person with the capacity to do so, In the words of the preacher, God says, rejoice, be happy, find joys in the find joy in the days when you can be physically, mentally and relationally active. Now, to be clear, our author is not diminishing eternal life with God. He actually doesn't even have that in view. His focus is on the brevity of life and our need to enjoy it. And I think he knows what many of us know, that we take life for granted We may not know that when we're young, but we realize that when we are older, that we take life for granted. We think we have time. We'll do that later. One day we'll enjoy it. We sort of live life in a holding pattern, hoping that one day that joy that we've been seeking will come. One day we will get there. The Preacher is telling us life is brief. So enjoy it right now. And then he says something that seems so anti-biblical particularly in our days, he says something that fits with the motto of our times. Verse nine, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. That sounds a lot like you do you follow your heart, take what you want, do what you feel. Well, if our author didn't qualify it and if we didn't have the rest of the Bible, it you, you can make it mean that you could co-opt that text to to support a lot of modern day thinking. But but let's just say there's a right way to follow your heart and a wrong way to follow your heart. Don't miss the end of verse nine. But for all these things, God will bring you in to judgment. Guardrails right there. Those are those, that's that's bumpers on the bowling lane. But for all these things, God will bring you into jo- into judgment. Rejoice, but follow a God directed, God honoring heart. I heard one pastor say that there's a big difference between the world's YOLO and God's YOLO. If you don't know what that is, I really didn't either. OK, that's YOLO. You only live once. It's something that most people yell right before they do something stupid and exciting. OK. We don't have time to trace out what all the guardrails are. That would take the rest of the Bible. But let's let's just acknowledge generally this is not supporting licentious living that goes against the Bible. Okay, that's not part of the equation here. But let's also acknowledge that God has stocked his world with goods to be enjoyed. God made a good world to be enjoyed. So this is not pointing you to licentious Sinful living that runs contrary to the rest of God's commands. But it is saying that God has created a good world to be enjoyed. And don't miss that it is written in the form of a command. Rejoice, oh, young man, not a suggestion. As one author said, failure to enjoy is an offense, not an oversight. He says, for it is precisely in enjoying the world God has made that we show we have grasped the goodness of the God we say we love. One commentator put it this way, enjoyment is not only permitted, it is commanded. It is not an opportunity, it is a divine imperative. Like, that's a good command. Don't, we, we feel burdened sometimes by commands, right? He says rejoice. Like, that is not burdensome. And that's freeing. Rejoice. You know, I, studied this all week it's hard to know where to start when you hear something like okay it's a command I like that where do I start? Best I can give you like most things start small okay start with the little things because if you think that enjoyment of God's world only comes through extravagant things then you are sort of inherently saying that only rich people only people with resources can find enjoyment in God's world and I think that would be contrary to what God would say I think God would would say there's, a, there's an abundance of joy in the everyday, ordinary things that he has given us, that he has created. People have rightly said that if you can't find joy in the small things, then you are unlikely to find it anywhere. And if you can't be grateful and joyful in the small, then that is one step from no longer being grateful or joyful in anything. There's a story about John Stott. He was a British pastor and theologian. As the story goes, he had a ministry assistant that would bring him a cup of coffee at like 4.30 in the afternoon when he was studying. And every time he set the coffee down, Stott would just mumble under his breath, I'm not worthy. And he just kept hearing that over and over. And finally, the ministry assistant, when he heard it one day, said, no, Pastor Stott, you are. You are. And Stott looked at him and said, you have your theology of grace wrong. Stott. Looked at that cup of coffee and thought, I'm not even worthy to receive that small of a gift. Just think about applying that attitude toward the house you have, the family you have, the friends you have, the food you have, the job you have, the opportunities you have to simply go outside and enjoy God's creation, the simple joys of life, the ones we are often too busy to notice and to pause and to enjoy, or the ones we try to get more out of than they can deliver. For the younger in the room, don't miss embracing the simple joys of life, the simple gifts that God has given you. For the older, rejoice while there's still time. On top of that, exhort the younger to rejoice and not miss out, okay? Use your experience to disciple the younger toward joy. When you, don't you want, if, you, if you're older, don't you want the younger to have a joy-filled life that maybe you, 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 you missed out on for a few years? All right. One last thing under this mindset. Verse 10 says to remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. Sounds like an impossible command, right? Sure. It's great. Just just there it is. It's gone. Pain gone. Vexation gone. I think his aim here is is he's he's trying to aim at those things that rob us of the joy he's exhorting us to remove pain from your body. Basically, don't work so hard you burn out. Don't train so hard you injure yourself. Okay, don't go at it so hard that you, you, you hurt yourself and you can't enjoy it. And then removing vexation flee. do everything you can to work against anxiety and worry those things that vex you. You know, we often import vexation into our lives. We bring things into a situation to worry about that that situation has nothing to do with. Sometimes thinking the worst of a given situation when that situation doesn't present us with that option. We try and take what's uncertain and seek control over it. And then we've brought vexation in. The preacher says, don't do that. Fight anxiety and worry with everything God has given you because it will rob you of joy. One writer said, he said, when it comes to fighting vexation, he said, pray and let God worry. Pray and let God worry. Jesus had a good bit to say himself on the fruitlessness of worry and anxiety. Here it's clear that anxiety robs us of joy. Therefore, he wants us to remove it. He says, youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They are fleeting. They are but a vapor. Worry will rob you of the short time that you have to seek enjoyment in the good gifts that God has given. And there's likely there is not likely. there there's a whole sermon there on verse 10. Just you just how do we fight worry and anxiety? How, what does the Bible say about that? And obviously we don't have time to dive into that. But if worry and anxiety are robbing you of the joy in life that God has given you, don't don't sit in that like seek help through that. Find a pastor of this church. Find another member of this church. Hopefully nobody would turn you away if you said, if you came to them and said anxiety and worries robbing me of joy, I need help. Hopefully everybody would receive that with open arms. Okay, there's help there. Don't rest in that. Don't be robbed of joy. Last mindset, last approach. What does life under the sun look like? It looks like action amidst uncertainty, rejoicing amidst brevity, and finally it looks like piety amidst inevitability. Piety amidst inevitability. Verse one of chapter 12 says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. I think this just just puts a little more rigidity to the guardrails. okay, on the side of the commands for rejoicing. Yes, rejoice, but remember your creator. And I think it's a coincidence that he tells us to remember your creator and he doesn't just say, remember God. I think he's reinforcing the fact that God is the creator of all of these things that you are to enjoy. He didn't create an evil world. I think it even harkens back to Genesis and, and sort of a subtle jab at you're the one that messed it up. God created a good world. The evil in this world is a result of our own sin. So rejoice and specifically rejoice in all the good things that God has made. But don't forget the God who made it and who made you. Remembering here, this is not so much about knowledge or information or something you may not know. Okay, remembering here is devotion. Remembering here is pointing to putting God first. This is worship. You combine this with the last mindset and you get a God-centered or God-oriented rejoicing. So think about it. If if you remember something important, it affects everything you do. Think about it. When's the last time, if you're still working or if you can remember back to when you're working, that you had a really important meeting? I'm talking really important meeting. Or maybe a job interview or something like that. That really important meeting, you remembered it, okay? Now we have our calendars drive us nuts and say meeting, you know, however long you set the reminder for it may affect work the day before that meeting may affect work at home that night. It may affect what you do that it may affect how you sleep, what time you go to bed or whether you get any sleep. It may affect what time you get up. It may affect how you dress. It may affect what time you leave to head to work and what you do when you get there and then how you walk into that meeting. In short, Remembering that meaning affects everything about your life in that moment. How much more so should remembering God affect everything about our lives? Remembering God affects how we rejoice. Here's the key. The joy being put forward here and throughout this book, all these carpe diem type texts, this type of joy is founded in and informed by a relationship with God. It comes through, this joy comes through and is maximized by our walk with God. Being devoted to God, worshipping God, ascribing worth to God. Remember, as we've seen in other places in the book, not only are the gifts that we enjoy from God, the ability to enjoy them come from God. So he gives the gifts and the ability to enjoy them. All of that is from God. So it all comes through a relationship with him. So let's think about that. Let's take a time out right there and just marinate on that. Where are you? OK, each of you individually, where are you in terms of your relationship with God and therefore your access to joy? There are really only two options, son or daughter or enemy. OK, the Bible gives two options, son or daughter or enemy, or you could say adopted or alienated. OK in relationship or separated, however you want to say it. So ask yourself a question. Am I a son or daughter of God and have full access to this type of joy, to these gifts and the ability to enjoy them? Or am I alienated from God and therefore I really don't know and don't have access to what this type of joy looks like and feels like? If you say I'm a son or daughter, awesome. Praise the Lord. If you can't, here's the good news. Joy's available, okay? Jesus Christ died so that enemies could be reconciled. So that enemies could become sons and daughters. You can be adopted by God in relationship to Him and therefore have access to joy through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, we're gonna get to chapter 12 here in a second. We're gonna talk about aging and dying. A reality for every one of us, whether we've acknowledged that reality or not, we are all aging and we are all headed to death. Some of us soon, some of us maybe not as soon, but all of us soon enough. Every one of us are going to die. So the primary question to ask, particularly if you don't know Jesus, is not necessarily how you will live before you get there, but whether or not you are ready to get there. For the believer, you, you want to follow with Solomon and follow his exhortations of how am I supposed to live in light of death? If you're not a believer, you have to ask, am I ready for death? The believer, the follower of Jesus, can say, yes, I'm ready. Now tell me how to live till I get there. Where are you at? Where's everybody in this room? Relationship with God. Access to joy, victory over eventual death. Those things only come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says very clearly we have a problem. We've rebelled against God and stand opposed to God and separated from God. The Bible also puts forth a clear solution, and that solution is Jesus. Have you met him? Do you know him? Are you following him? There's nothing in this text that is good news If you don't know Jesus, there's there's no joy here. Okay, if you don't know Jesus. So if if any of that is confusing to you, like need to address that question, please find me afterwards. Find one of the other elders or just a member, anybody, whoever brought you. Let's talk afterwards. So we're not talking today about a joy that's available to all. This joy is available to those reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So we all need to figure out where we are on that. And if we can say, yes, I'm with him. I know Jesus, I've met him, I'm following him. Then we go back to the question of, all right, how do I live till I get there? All right. And back to the main point, piety amidst inevitability. Okay, or devotion to God amidst what is certain to come. If you want it put a different way, devotion to God amidst what is certain to come. As the text says, remember your creator before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then what follows is a vivid, poetic picture of the aging process that leads to death, seemingly mixed in with the end of creation. So most interpreters say that he's painting a picture of the sort of decaying decline of our bodies and our minds. And most everything in verses three through eight, I I would say, fit there. But there also seems to be some indication of the end of it all being in these texts. So, for instance, verse two, I think, points to the end of time. okay, which would accord with verse nine of chapter 11 about the day of judgment. okay. so we can rejoice and remember God because one day it's all going to end. I think that fits here. But for the most part, he's saying rejoice and remember because one day it's going to get really hard and next to impossible to do so. One day it's, it's gonna to be too late for that. One day your physical and mental state may be so bad that you simply won't be able to rejoice and to remember. Again, you have to appreciate the honesty of Ecclesiastes. He never shies away from the realities of life. It doesn't sugarcoat things. One thing to note here though, I, I do think the preacher's language, I mean, if you really studied, it's, it's dignified. This is a beautiful poem. OK, beautiful poem written by our author about the process of aging and death. So I don't, I don't want us to miss that. OK, he's not making light of it. This is not a trivial passage. He's not looking at it in a negative way. This, this is just it's a beautiful poetic picture of what it looks like, but it still doesn't sugarcoat the reality. So each of these images represent some form of physical or mental decay that generally happens. Verse two says we generally stop taking pleasure in life. Verse three talks about our bodies decaying like an old house. So the the keepers are probably arms. The strong men are our legs that start to give way or you could flip those. The grinders are our teeth, those who look through the window. Those are the dimming of the eyes. Verse four talks about the decline of hearing as well as being restless. You can't hear anything, but you seem to be awakened by everything. Verse five, you are more fearful of things at times. The almond tree blossoming is likely white hair if you're left with any. You're no longer agile like the grasshopper, but you drag along. Verse five also points to the diminishing of desires, likely specifically sexual desire. And then the text leads us to the grave, to actual death. We have mention of the eternal home of mourners. And then you have these different phrases, the silver cord snapping, golden bowl breaking, pitcher being shattered, a wheel broken, all ancient references to death or to something that would happen at a funeral. And then the clear reference to us returning to the dust and the spirit returning to God. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's all fleeting. It's all vapor. It's confusing and perplexing. Now. Admittedly, even if the section is poetic and the language is dignified, it's depressing. So a word to those either facing this, walking through it, or, wit- or you've witnessed somebody walking through it. Remember that in Christ, everything that crumbles and decays will be made new. In effect, our old house will become a new house one day. 2 Corinthians five one for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building with God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Jesus is making all things new. But why enjoy your life now? Because our time is limited and decay and death is coming for us all. The teacher says there is coming a time where you will no longer meet the category of young. Die early or grow old. There really is no other alternative. One author says the call to remember our creator while we are young is a command to recall how the world was meant to be and to seek to live in light of that before the reality of how the world actually now is catches up with us and sweeps us along in the inevitable descent into old age. He goes on to add one day you will come undone. God's curse of creation in response to the fall means time will see you unmade. Maybe it will happen without the help of old age. It could come sooner rather than later, or it may not begin to sow for for another 30 years. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes is taking you by the hand and gently asking before that day comes, how will you live now? And that question at the end of the quote really works for the entire text. How will you live now for the entire book? Life is uncertain. Life is brief. Death is inevitable. Given those realities, how will you live? It's been the question all along. The preacher here specifically would tell you to plan or to invest wisely, work diligently, give generously, rejoice exceedingly, remember your creator continually. He would tell you, walk closely with your creator. Enjoy his creation walk in devotion to the giver as you enjoy the gifts If you are not close to him, the gifts are going to get smaller, but the closer you are to him The better the gifts are Just trying to think of a way to conclude the text it feels like It's a bucket list kind of text, right? Like I want to go skydiving or Whatever, you know, you put in that, like, what is the big thing that's going to be on my bucket list? Okay, Disney World does not get to be one of those things. Skydiving can be one of those things. Just feels like a bucket list inducing text. But again, I think starting with the little things is a better approach. Why don't we simply start with the following? Resolve to enjoy the simple pleasures of good food, good drink, and good friends. Start with a meal with some people and enjoy it. Resolve to enjoy your spouse today, your kids, your friends, your faith family. Resolve to enjoy your jobs. Realize you're working for the Lord. Resolve to enjoy a walk, a run, a hike, a moment at the lake, a hug. A good conversation, resolve to enjoy serving others, being generous with your talents and your time and your treasures, resolve to enjoy God's word, resolve to enjoy God's listening ear, resolve to enjoy God's worship. If you were up for it, maybe try skydiving, bungee jumping, cliff jumping, whatever gets you excited for the wise and sane people in the world, a really good and probably or properly received and rightly enjoyed cup of coffee may do. So that's the best I got for you. Enjoy the simple things. You can go try the crazy things if you want, but I'm not endorsing it. Okay. So let's pray now. And then, you know, we have immediate opportunity to go and apply this text to enjoy a meal with friends. Okay. So let's see if we can leverage the truth that God has given us in what he is about to provide for us. And looking at the time, we can rejo- rejoice in the shortish, uh, a shortish kind of sermon for once. So there's good things all around today. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your goodness and kindness toward us. We're thankful for your word and we pray that you would help us to apply it. It's difficult to know with the uncertainty of life, the brevity of life, the certainty of death, exactly how to live. It's, it's hard to know how to parse through what these things look like specifically. So we pray that you would help us, that we would help one another. That we would take action amidst the uncertainty, that we would rejoice amidst the brevity. But most of all, we would remember you amidst it all, amidst what is inevitable. Let us... Let it drive us to devotion and to worship. So we praise you for the time. We praise you for what is about to come. Help us to enjoy the goodness of food that you provide and the joy of company with others. Thank you for family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.